First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning, church. Uh, This is our second week in this uh, four-week series called Cancel Culture. And as we said when we kicked off this series, Cancel Culture is the name for how our society today rejects and shames and even silences and punishes those who say or do something that the pervading culture finds to be offensive. Last week, we studied Romans chapter 12. We asked the question, how can we as God's people respond when cancel culture comes after us, when it comes after our uh, beliefs, many of which we know the world does find to be objectionable and offensive? And like we said, when that happens, uh, we cannot waffle on the truth. Uh, We cannot waffle on what good and evil are. Uh, We cannot be silent either and just keep our head down. Love compels us that we speak the truth in love. But also we cannot be angry. We cannot seek to try to cancel back. The Lord calls us to love even those who treat us like enemies and to pray for them. Pray for them to be saved, pray that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. Like we said last week, as believers in Christ, we don't have a gospel of cancellation. We have a gospel of reconciliation. And so while the rest of this world may be running around and uh, trying to cancel everybody else who doesn't agree with them, we're not called to cancel people. We've been sent on a mission by God to help people to be reconciled with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so with that groundwork laid in place last week, what I want us to do today and then for a couple of weeks after Mother's Day is to look at three different areas where our world is actively trying to cancel us. Because we need to be prepared for that. We need to be ready to stand firm when those attacks come, and they will. And they already are. And so today we're going to look at the first and most basic area where our world is trying to cancel us, and that is in their attempt to cancel God himself, or to cancel at least the Christian God as we meet him in the Bible. I was struck by a headline that I saw on Good Friday in the once esteemed paper known as the New York Times. They invited an opinion writer, a guest writer, named Shalom Oslander to submit this piece. And here is the headline of the piece. In this time of war, I propose that we give up God. Oslander is a disaffected Jew, and in this opinion column, he argues that because of, among other things, the judgment that God poured out on Egypt during the time of the Exodus, that essentially God is a big meanie. And Oslander says we should not be teaching our children to be like him. In fact, playing off of the fact that Good Friday is also the start of the Jewish Passover, Oslander writes, quote, perhaps now is a good time to teach our children to pass over God to be as unlike him as possible. 
In his dream world, Oslander goes on to write that children would not cheer when they hear the name of God, but would rather boo his name instead. That there are people who would write and say such things is, of course, sad and tragic, but it is not altogether surprising. But what was surprising to me, although it probably should not have been, is that the New York Times thought that the holy day of Good Friday was the perfect day to post this column and take a shot at the Christian and Jewish God of our faith. I will leave it to you to decide if the New York Times would have ever run such a piece during the Muslim holy days of Ramadan criticizing Allah or his prophet Muhammad. But I'm pretty sure that you already know the answer to that. In America today, while other religious faiths are largely protected and defended, it is quite frankly open season on the Christian God and on the Christian faith. There is no doubt that there is a battle taking place. And ultimately, we know that it is a spiritual battle. It is a battle for the souls of men and women and girls and boys that God loves. The reason why I'm bringing this message on this particular day when we've just spent time recognizing our graduates is because there is no particular place in America, I believe, where this battle is raging more so than on the college campuses of America where many of these graduates are heading in just a few short months. In his book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, Joe Dallas cites several examples of anti-Christian bias on public universities. He speaks of Christian students who attended Christian universities for their undergraduate degrees and then are hindered or barred from attending law school because they graduated from institutions that hold to, quote, wrong beliefs about sex and family. He also mentions examples of Christian medical students who object to abortion receiving similar viewpoint discrimination. This week, in my study for this message, I read story after story after story of individual Christian students who were threatened by teachers, in some cases expelled from their degree program simply for being an outspoken advocate of their faith. I read stories of Christian clubs on college campuses being shut down and not giving standing on campus to reserve rooms and have meetings because they ensured in their documents that those who would be leaders in those clubs and organizations actually be Christians and ascribe to a basic Christian statement of faith. In some cases, the university gave them a choice. Either they could allow anyone to be a leader in their club, including atheists, Buddhists, and practicing homosexuals, or they could be shut down if they continued to hold to their discriminatory practices. This is the environment that many of our graduates are heading into this fall. Their faith in God will be attacked. People will try to cancel their faith. And my heart for them, as I shared with them in the first service, is that they would be prepared to defend when those attacks come. It's my heart for all of us that we would be prepared, even if our time in college is many years in the rearview mirror, as thankfully it is for me. The battle is on, and it is on throughout our culture. 
And so I want us to talk today about how we can continue to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of a culture that is increasingly growing hostile towards our faith. And I can't think of a passage that speaks more directly to our, cancels, our culture's desire to cancel God than Romans chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles today, and I hope that you do, would you turn with me to Romans 1? And let's start reading in verse 18. The Word of God says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That's quite a list. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage in your word to read, and yet these are words of truth that you have given us, and they cut through the deceit and falsehood that we find in our world. Father, help us today to know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Father, give us grace that we might stand firm in our faith, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here is the plan with uh, the time that we have left today. We're going to pack a lot in today, all right? And so you have to listen very quickly today. Uh, I want us to start by studying Romans chapter 1, this passage we've just read. I want us to see some of the basic underlying truths about our culture's desire to cancel God. And after that, we're going to just briefly look at some of the specific practical ways that our culture is trying to cancel God and then we'll close very quickly just a few ways we can respond to that. And so first off, again, in Romans 1, Paul gives us some basic truths about cancel culture and God that we need to understand. And here is the first one. Our culture is canceling a God that they know exists. Right before we picked up our reading in verse 18, Paul just got done talking in verses 16 and 17 about the gospel 
about the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us at the cross, how it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew and for the Greek or the Gentile. And really, when you look at all of Romans 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of this letter, Paul is making a case. He's building an argument that all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, all of us are sinners, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. He's building to what he says in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And after he gives us that bad news, as we go on in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, Paul is going to tell us about the good news. That even though we're sinners, Christ came and paid for that sin, and we can be forgiven if we would surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus. And so that's what he's getting at. But back in our text, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he is describing for us the, the twisted mind of sinful humanity and how God's wrath is justly poured out on us because of our rejection of the one who made us. In these verses, Paul clearly lays out that all people actually instinctively know an awful lot of things about God. First of all, he says that everyone in the world knows that God exists. Now, really, this whole passage teaches that, but in particular, look with me at verse 21. Paul writes, because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, when it says, although they knew God, he's not saying that all people in the world know God or knew God in a saving way, but it means that all people in the world are conscious of God's existence, that deep down we know that God is there. In Ecclesiastes, we read that God has placed a knowledge of eternity in our hearts. In verse 25, it describes this as a choice that's being made to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Now, if you're able to exchange the truth for a lie, it means you had the truth to start with and you decided to exchange it. And that's what we as sinful humanity have done. Verse 22, short verse, but very powerful. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, I believe that that verse could be etched into the stone of the entranceway to most public universities in America today. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Because it does not matter how smart someone is, how brilliant someone is, if you deny God's existence, if you do not glorify him as you were created to, if you do not thank him as you should, then you have missed out on the entire purpose of life on this planet. And that is a foolish thing to do. That's why Psalm 14 begins this way. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Paul says, deep down, everyone in the world knows that that's not true, that God exists. Not only do they know that, they know even more than that. They don't just know that God exists, they also know what God is like. And you say, well, how do they know that? I mean, what if they've never had a Bible? Or what if they've never been to church? What if they grew up on some remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Well, he answers that. Look at verses 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Verse 19 says that everyone in the world can know some things about God because he's made it manifest. He's made it plain. He set it before them. And the way that he did that is what theologians refer to as his general revelation. He's done it through the created world. And so verse 20 is saying that there, there are some things we can see in the visible world that teach us about what our invisible God is like. And it mentions two things in particular. It mentions his eternal power, and it mentions his Godhead or divine nature, which really refers to everything else about him, his faithfulness, his glory, his beauty, his love. One of my favorite passages in the Bible about this truth is back in the Old Testament in Psalm 19. It starts out like this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, if we are listening, the entire created order is shouting to us about what God is like. You know, I don't know how it's possible for a person to look at the ocean, to look at a mountain range, to look at a forest even for that matter, to go to the zoo or to consider the human body or even a part of the human body like the human eye and to not marvel and wonder at the genius and the power and the might of God. Now, that knowledge is not sufficient on its own to save us, but according to Romans 1, it is sufficient to condemn us. Because what we have done as sinful humanity is instead of responding to that revelation that God has given us in creation, we have turned away from that and we have worshipped idols and false gods that we have made up. Verse 25 says that we have served the created thing, the creation, rather than the creator. Again, Paul is making his case against us here. Everyone in the world knows that God exists. Everyone in the world knows what God is like. We also know instinctively what God requires. You can see that first off in the last verses we read in chapter 1. After listing all those sinful behaviors in verses 28 through 31. Then we read this in verse 32. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What a statement that is of our society today. Paul says that because all humanity knows what God is like, we also know what God condemns. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. We know that if we sin and do what is wrong, that we are deserving of death. And yet the verse says we keep on doing those things anyway. And then we go and approve of other people who do the same things in part so that we can feel better about doing those things ourselves. And you see the same idea in chapter 2 when Paul's talking about Gentiles who've never read the law of Moses. And so he's responding to the argument, well, how could they know what the law is? How can they know what God requires? And he talks about our consciences. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. These Gentiles who show the work of the law written in their hearts 
their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. God has given all of us this thing called a conscience. And we know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil, and we cannot claim that we don't. And so now, if according to Romans 1, everyone in the world knows that God exists, everyone in the world knows deep down what God is like, and they also know what God expects, then how come it is that people, uh, all of us, are worshipped other gods instead of worshipping Him? Why is it that our culture is trying to cancel God? Well, that's the second truth we need to see. Romans chapter 1 teaches us that those who cancel God are suppressing the truth that they know. And we won't spend long here, but this truth is so plainly stated in this passage. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the word suppress there means to, to push something down, to try to keep it down. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever eaten anything that didn't agree with you. Anybody ever happened to happen to you? know, without getting graphic here, I, I did say to our, our graduates here, you know, I know a lot of times, you know, they're, they're living on Taco Bell, right? And, you know, sometimes when you eat that kind of quality of meat, it may not agree with you, right? And so there's times where you feel it and you feel it starting to rise up and you think this is not going to be good. And so what are you trying to do? You're trying to keep it down. Well, this verse is saying that that is what our unbelieving world is trying to do with the truth. They're trying to keep it down. They're trying to suppress it. Now, why? Well, verse 28 is a very telling verse about that. Look at it with me. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Do you know why a lot of college students, for example, even some who grew up with some understanding of God, decide when they go to college that they're not going to believe in God anymore? Do you know why some of them end up accepting one or another of the absolutely lame arguments against Christianity that I'm about to run through in just a moment? You know why some of them hear a schoolmate, someone in college questioned them and say, oh, that's a really good point. Or their professor challenges them and they say, that's an excellent point. You know what? I shouldn't believe in God anymore. It's in part because of what it says right here. Because they did not like to, they did not want to retain God in their knowledge. They stopped believing in God quite simply because they did not want to believe in God. Now, why is that? You know, if you can push God out of your knowledge and out of your thinking, you know what else goes on with that? When you push God out of your thinking, you also push out this little annoying conviction of sin anytime you do anything wrong. And so now there is no one in the universe to question anything that you are doing, and we get to be what we wanted to be all along in our sinful nature, and that is our own God. And here's where cancel culture comes in. Because when you want to push God out of your thinking and not hear that voice in your conscience telling you that what you're doing is wrong anymore, it is also really helpful if you can get all of those annoying Christians who keep reminding you about what God says to also be quiet and go away. 
Paul tells us that those who cancel God are canceling a God they know exists, suppressing the truth so they don't have to be bound to live by it. And really, that leads to this inescapable conclusion. Truth number three, those who cancel God are without excuse. And again, we see that in verse 20, the verse we read earlier. Look at it with me again. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I know that a lot of people today are uncomfortable with the concepts that are taught in this passage and in the Bible, the concepts of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And yet, what have we seen in this passage? We've seen that we are accountable because we know that God exists. We know what he is like. We've suppressed that truth so we could live the way that we wanted to. We've turned away from God who made us, who sent his son to die to save us. And we have worshipped other things instead of God. I know that I'm speaking today to many who are, by God's grace, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And what that means is that at some point in your life, Because of the grace of God upon you, you became convicted of that sin. Because as we read this passage, I don't want you to think that this is someone else. We're reading about ourselves. This is all of us. We have all turned away from God. We have all worshipped the created thing instead of the creator. That's sin. And we're all sinners. But if you're a believer today, it means that at some point in your life, God opened your eyes to that. As he opened my eyes to that, even when I was a boy, that I had been sinning. I had been living for myself instead of for him. But God also shared with me through his word the truth of how much he loves me. The truth of what he did to save me by sending his son Jesus to pay for my sin, to rise again. And when I received that into my life, it changed my life. It changed the course of my life. And I am far, far away from a finished product. I can assure you of that. But the grace of God has never let me go, and it will never let me go. And I know that's your story, many of you as well. But listen, until a person meets Jesus in a saving way, as long as we continue to try to live like our own God and suppress the knowledge of God, the Bible says that we are under the wrath of God, that the judgment of God is poured out on us, and it's poured out on us in a number of different ways. One of the ways that we experience the judgment of God, even in this life, is that God has just built into the created order natural consequences when we sin against his law. When we do things that he has told us not to do, there are natural consequences that come our way because of that. One of the other judgments that we can experience in this life is something Paul references three times in this passage. In verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. In all three of those verses, you'll find this phrase, God gave them up or gave them over. It's one of the most severe judgments that God can give, where he just says to a person, you know what, if you're so bound and determined to live your life without the knowledge of me in your thinking and in your mind, then I will just let you do as you please. And you'll experience the consequences of that in this life and in the next. We know that that final judgment of God awaits all of us at the end of our life where we stand before the Lord. And if a person is not trusted in Jesus as their Savior, they are not ready for that day of judgment to come. 
And so no matter what the world may say about it now, that final day of judgment will show once and for all that those who cancel the God who made them and died to save them are without excuse. Now with these foundational biblical truths in our minds about how our world is seeking to cancel God, I want to just very quickly mention some of the specific ways Specific ways that this is going to happen to these graduates as they go to these college campuses, but really ways that it's going to come to all of us. Now, as I mentioned these challenges, of course, we do not have time this morning to give anywhere near a full response to these. But, but these are the types of attacks that we need to expect and be ready to answer. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm drawing on and adapting a list from author Alex McFarlane. But here are seven of the ways that cancel culture will try to cancel your faith in the God of the Bible. First off, they will tell you that science has disproven God's existence. Now, of course, science has done nothing of the sort. And we don't need to reconcile God and science because they are old friends. And the same one who made the one made the other. And, you know, a fruitful and faith-building investment of your time, if you have never done so before, is to study the scientific evidence for intelligent design in the universe and in this world and in the human body. You know, while evolutionary scientists will say that only their view is based on science and that creationists are ignorant worshipers who only have their, quote, faith, My view is that it actually requires far more faith to believe that we are here by accident than to believe that when I look at the world and I see plenty of evidence of design, the reason that I see that is that there is an intelligent designer behind it all who made it all. So if cancel culture cannot get you to just deny God's existence outright, then they'll do this. Number two, they'll tell you that there are many different gods and many different ways to God. See, for the most part, our culture does not have a problem with people who are just, quote, spiritual, or people who believe in one God or another but do not care whatever you believe in. The world doesn't have a problem with that. Our world does have a problem with those who are so, in their view, arrogant as to say that there is only one God and only one way to God. But of course, as believers, we did not make that up, right? This is something that Jesus has said, that he is the only way to God. The Bible says there is no other name by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And so no matter if our world calls us narrow-minded church, we need to understand it is not humble and it is not loving to tell people that there are a hundred ways to get to God when there is only one. Here's another thing cancel culture will say to you to try to get you to cancel your faith. They'll tell you that Christians are all hypocrites and that Christianity is the greatest cause of evil in the world. That message is particularly being heard on college campuses today. And and of course, there are some aspects of that attack that we just need to own. Certainly, there are a lot of professing Christians who are total hypocrites who in reality are probably not really even saved and therefore are not living a lifestyle that looks like a Christian lifestyle at all. That does not mean, though, that every Christian lives that way. Certainly people have done awful things 
at times in history in the name of Christianity. The Crusades and the Inquisition are two examples that quickly come to mind. But in general, far from Christianity being the greatest source of evil in the world, Christianity has been without question the greatest impetus for good in the world over the last 2,000 years. And it really is beyond even debate. And if you look today at the places in this world where there are a great number of churches and believers and where Christianity is truly practiced, and you compare the way people are treated in those cultures and in those societies, and compare that and contrast that against secular, godless, and oftentimes communist regimes, and look at how people are treated there, really, that should be about all the evidence that we need for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only on an individual life, but on a culture as well. If none of those work, here is a fourth line of attack that's going to come at you sooner or later. They will tell you that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. It's hard to give just a brief response to that objection. But I will tell you that it springs from, first off, a severe underestimation of how holy God is. It also springs from an underestimation of how wicked we are in contrast. And it also comes from a redefining of the word love to mean what we want it to mean instead of what God says it means. And God is love, but he is not only love. He is also holy and righteous and just in all his ways. And in his love, God has sent his son to die to pay for our sins so that we would not have to spend eternity in hell that we deserve. But like we saw today in Romans chapter 1, if we reject his love, if we reject his grace, if we suppress the truth that we know about him and worship idols instead of the Lord, then we are without excuse and we deserve the righteous judgment of God upon our sin. Another common thing folks will say to try to cancel your faith is this. They'll tell you that a good God would not allow evil and suffering in the world. And this so-called problem of evil is something that all of us will wrestle with at some point in our life, believer and unbeliever alike. But you know, one of the tests of a worldview is whether or not it helps make sense of the world that actually exists. How does a worldview explain the presence of evil and suffering in the world? The Bible does explain where that evil and suffering comes from. The Bible tells us that we have a good God who created us in his image, capable of choosing good and evil. And we have chosen evil. We have chosen to bring sin and a curse into this world. But the Bible doesn't leave the story there. The Bible also tells us that God in his love has entered into this evil world. He's entered into our suffering even as he hung on the cross and was nailed to the tree. And the Bible tells us that God is not finished yet, that one day he will make all things new and evil and suffering will be no more. A sixth thing they'll tell you is this. They'll tell you that the Bible is a man-made book that cannot be trusted. Now, this is what the entire next message in this series is going to be about, how our culture wants to cancel the Bible. And so I won't spend long on this here, but I, I do remember this happening to me in college when I was at Florida State. And I remember I was right across the street from the campus. I was at a cafe on this particular afternoon. And I had my Bible. I was reading my Bible out at one of the tables there at the cafe. And a professor who was across the street from the school eating at that same 
place. He saw me there, and, and I think looking back on it now, he probably had it as his ambition in life to try to snub out the faith of any poor, unsuspecting evangelical student that he found. And so when he saw me reading my Bible, he came over and sat down with me at the table, and he began to ask me, do you know about how many errors are in that book that you're reading? And he proceeded to give me a few examples of what he thought were errors. I remember one of them had to do with the text of Ecclesiastes. And I went back and I studied those things and, of course, found out that they didn't hold any water whatsoever. But friends, do not just accept what someone says when they critique the Bible. What we need to study, we need to discover the answers to the questions that are raised. And if you don't know the answers, there are those who do. Lastly, and increasingly today, what's being used to drive, in particular, young people away from the faith is this. Number seven, they will tell you that Christians are judgmental haters. And so they will make professing Christians feel ashamed. They will tell them, how could you be one of those hateful people that thinks that what everybody else is doing is wrong, especially when it comes to their sexuality? And this is what the entire last message in this series is going to be about, how our world wants to cancel God's design for the family, including God's design for gender, God's design for sexuality, how we can respond to it. You know, as we wrap up this morning, again, I'm thinking today especially about these graduates, but, but again, for all of us, as we go out in this world and we know that these attacks and many others are coming, how can we respond? Very quickly, let me just give you four words. Number one, we need to grow. We need to grow. Second Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Church, we cannot just coast. We cannot just put it into cruise control and and think that it's going to be all right as pressures are mounting. We need to know what we believe and we need to know why we believe it. And we need to grow and, and, and we're not going to grow unless we do the things that help us to grow. Unless we spend time in the word of God. Unless we make that the habit of our life to read his word each and every day. Unless we spend time in prayer. Unless we spend time with the people of God in the house of God. These are the things that we need to to be able to grow and stay rooted and grounded in our faith. Number two, we need to stand. We need to understand that there is a battle that is going on and we need to treat it as such. We need to take our stand on God's truth and arm ourselves for the battle. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, those atheists and agnostics that may be in our life are not our enemies. That unbelieving professor is not our enemy. Some politician is not our enemy. No, who do we wrestle against? Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Number three, we've got to prepare. We've got to prepare. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. As I was running through those seven lines of attack that are going to come as our culture tries to cancel our faith in God, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I don't know how I would respond to that. If a coworker, if a friend, if a neighbor, if a family member were to bring up that objection, well, then it's time to prepare. 
And we're going to put out a list of helpful resources over the course of the next few weeks to help you as you prepare to be able to give an answer for the reason for the faith that you have. And then lastly, number four, we've got to love. You know, we always need to remember that even when those attacks come, even though we need to be ready to defend our faith, our goal is never just to win an argument. And our goal certainly is not to be argumentative. No, God calls us to love people even when they disagree with us, even when they attack us. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And when we love people with the love of God, even in the face of attack, he can and will use that love to draw them to himself and to open up their eyes to the truth, the same truth that has changed our lives. Church, I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to worship together. I don't know how the Lord has been speaking to you, how he's calling on you to respond to his message today. Maybe you're here and you're related to one of these graduates that walked out of the room holding that candle a few minutes ago. Maybe as we sing here, instead of just staying where you are, maybe God would lead you today just to come up and kneel here at this altar and just pray for them. To, to put their name here before God and to say, God, as, as that young person that I love, that I care so much about, as they go out into this world, would you help them to stand? And would you just tell God your confidence is not even so much in them as it is in him? Because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So again, maybe God would call you just to come and to lift up and to pray for one of these or to pray for yourself as you live every day in this world. Maybe you're in a situation right now where people are attacking, they're coming after your faith in God just to come and say, God, help me. Give me the strength to stand. Give me the right words to respond graciously and winsomely when I'm attacked. That I might be a faithful witness. And maybe you're here and, and, and you would say, you know what, I've always known in the back of my mind that God was there, but, but just like we saw today in, in, in the Bible, I, I, haven't, I haven't been living that way. I've kind of been suppressing that. I've been pushing that down. I've been living the way that I want to live, but I know I can't do that anymore. I know I need to turn my life over to God and I need to receive Jesus into my heart. And if that's you, as soon as we start to sing, you just come forward, share that with me, share that with one of the other pastors that's here. Today, I want to receive that forgiveness and that grace of God in my life. So you respond as God leads you. Let's sing together.